Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, Why don't I open us together again in a time of prayer before we open God's word. Heavenly Father, our Father, we come to you this morning because you came to us first. And we pray that in our gathering We set some time apart on Sunday to gather together to hear from you that your name would be hallowed. That as we walk through your word, your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, um, we've all seen it happen, and we've all probably made it happen. It happens in conversations over coffee, probably far too often at the dreaded high school reunion. Uh, It happens very frequent in the community group prayer request. It's actually become so popular that it has its own Twitter handle. It's the wonderfully annoying humble brag. Um, some of you uh, maybe have heard of this. For those of you who haven't, a humble brag is a way 
of talking about how amazing your life is while also undercutting it with a bit of self-effacing humor. Um, So for example, somebody would come up to you and say, ugh, I just ate 15 pieces of chocolate. I've got to learn some self-control when I'm in first class, so they're going to cancel my modeling contract. It's like, okay, really? Who are you trying to impress? Um, I was at a birthday party a couple weeks ago, and a gentleman came up to me, and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I've got to leave. I'm, I'm really, I just feel terrible. I said, you don't have to tell me, and that's okay. Just leave whenever you've got to leave. He's like, no, no, I just, I feel awful. I feel terrible. I've got to go. I've got to go deliver a meal to a sick family. I mean, what are you going to do, right? Okay, fine. Um, and then come to find out, you know, he says this to four or five other people. We're all susceptible to this, aren't we? Um, I know I'm guilty. And we all know that bragging is annoying. And we know we shouldn't boast in what we've done or where we've been or who we think we are. And yet we do it anyway. Why? Well, I think it's because underneath all this bragging, all this boasting, is a deep, deep-seated insecurity. A deep, deep deep-seated insecurity. There's something within all of us, wired within all of us, that longs for affirmation, that longs for approval, that we're finally good enough, smart enough, pretty enough. And no matter how hard we try to believe otherwise, oh, it's just good self-confidence. We need the affirmation of someone outside of ourself, outside of our mind, that we really are good enough, smart enough pretty enough. Now, in case somebody hasn't noticed, we brag. If they don't see what we see when we look in the mirror because of all the hard work we've done to finally be proud of ourselves when we look in the mirror, we boast. And look, in those conversations, we know the triggers. We're looking for that raised eyebrow, that head nod of approval, or for someone to finally say, wow, that that is a really good idea. Oh, That's very interesting. I've never heard that before. That does look good on you. You know, we we want these phrases from people. And even though we know it's annoying when we hear people bragging and boasting, we think it's the only way to get what we're looking for, what we're longing for, what we're hoping for. Look, I fall into the same trap too. But no matter how we try to disguise it, it won't deliver what we're looking for. But boasting, let me say this, boasting itself isn't the problem. You see, the Christian faith, all the way from its origins, has always been all about that boast, right? It's just been very, very exclusive. So you see, there's only one thing we can boast in that'll ever bring the acceptance our heart is really looking for. There's only one thing that we can boast in that'll bring about the approval, lasting approval we so desperately need. Only one thing, and it's counterintuitive. Many people have called it idiotic, stupid, foolish, unnecessary. But there's only one thing we can boast in that will actually have the power to deliver. Well, today we're continuing our six-month journey through a little letter that isn't that little uh, called 1 Corinthians. And we're calling it a beautiful mess. This early missionary, this Christian leader, Paul, is writing to a first century church in first century Corinth. And even though we're millennia apart, they're like us in the most significant of ways. We saw last week that yes, they are the church. Yes, they've got so much going for them, but they're a stinking mess. 
They're a beautiful mess, but they're a mess nonetheless. And we come to find out that just like we do today, they're boasting in all the wrong things. And Paul doesn't want this toxic conversation to keep going. He wants us to know, he wants them to know there's only one thing you can boast in. And that's Jesus Christ crucified. Now, if you're new to the church or you're new to Christianity or, man, even if you've been around Christianity for a while, that can sound really weird. (laughs) Um, And even if you've been around the church for a while and that sounds familiar, Where we all have common ground is we need to dive deeper into what it actually means when we say we boast in Jesus Christ crucified. What it actually means to say we boast in the cross. And so this morning, as we go through our passage, we're going to see the one right thing that we can boast in that has the power to deliver what we long for, hope for, dream for, and that's Jesus Christ crucified, especially when the way of the cross The people of the cross and the message of the cross seem foolish. This morning, we're going to walk through our passage. We're going to see the one thing that we can boast in, Jesus Christ crucified, especially when the way of the cross, the people of the cross, and the message of the cross seem foolish. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18. We're going to be keeping our noses in the book. If you don't, or if you're using one of our community Bibles, it's on page 618, okay? Well, at the end of the day, if you look the whole world over, there are really only two kinds of people. And they're not segregated by uh, gender or class. They're not separated by race or nationality. Look what chapter 1, verse 18 says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross produces only two kinds of people. On the one hand, there are those who mock the word of the cross and show themselves to be dying. And then there are those who boast in the word of the cross and show themselves to be saved. Look, I get it. If you're new to the Christian faith or you're new to the church, that can sound really arrogant, right? So stay with me. Um, What we're going to come to find is actually boasting in the cross brings us to new depths of humility, but we'll get there, okay? And it all revolves around what Paul means with this little phrase, the word of the cross, the word of the cross, To give you a short summary of a big story that spans the pages of Scripture, it all starts with God creating the world. And he doesn't create it like we exactly know it today, because then it was perfect. And yet created humanity pushed against their creator God and tried to push him out of their world, out of his world, his good world. And in rebellion, the world broke. It fragmented Because the world's ecosystem was never meant to flourish without him at the center. The same way if we were to try to change the gravitational pull of this planet, everything is so uniquely fine-tuned that if you were to adjust one small thing and imagine it being created for God's presence to saturate the world, and now he's being pushed out, of course it's going to break. Of course it's going to fragment. But God sees the brokenness of his good world, and out of his great mercy, out of his great grace, He comes to us in Jesus. And he actually takes our place by paying for our penalty for rebelling against him, the creator God, by actually dying in our place on a cross, a place where traitors were sent to die. 
but he doesn't stay dead. Three days later, he rises physically to begin to put the pieces back together in space-time of his broken but good world. And everyone who embraces Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior can know the great gift of real life now and forever. Now, after hearing about the word of the cross at the center of this great story, even if you've heard it a thousand times, the way of the cross can seem really foolish, can't it? And you don't have to be a modern person to think that. I mean, who would have thought that God would come and die? Not only that he would come and become human, but then he would die on the cross. And the most excruciating form of torture in the first century would become one of the greatest symbols of hope in the world. The cross. We're all looking for something. We're all striving to find something to place our confidence in, our hope in, to boast about, to find our answers in. And the Apostle Paul, he highlights two different groups of people here who could never get over the issue of the foolishness of the cross, okay? And the two particular groups are those with a Jewish worldview and those with a Greek worldview. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, what on earth is Paul talking about? <laughs> well, the Jewish community, as they're looking forward to God coming and delivering his people as he promised he would, as they are looking forward to this Messiah, which is Hebrew, their Christ, which is Greek, those mean the same thing, and they mean God's promised deliverer. As they're looking forward, Jesus Christ, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, that's a title. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, As the Jewish community was looking, they could only see and imagine this Messiah coming as a political, military deliverer, throwing off the shackles of oppressive Rome. And their imaginations are loaded with the categories of their own history as they're thinking about how God broke into history in the past. When he broke in when they were in shackles in Egypt as a very small and not yet a nation, and he brought them through the exodus. And so for very good reasons, they're looking for a new kind of Moses who comes with signs of deliverance. They're also thinking of other great historical figures like the ancient King David who brought together security and an autonomous nation of Israel. And as they think about the promises that God has made to King David that one of his offspring will one day come and reign over Israel and bring prosperity to the world. And then they meet Jesus who proclaims to be the Messiah. He doesn't meet meet any of their categories. But who could blame them? Because he doesn't really meet anybody's categories when he comes in. If you look in the Old Testament, there's a really important passage for the Jewish community in Deuteronomy. In this passage in Deuteronomy, it says that anyone who dies and hangs from a tree, that's a symbol, that's a sign that they are cursed from God. And so the Jewish community had a hard time knowing this in Scripture and seeing Jesus as the Messiah who didn't come to bring signs of deliverance, but came and died. God promised one came and died. And in his very death came and bore the signs of a curse. You see, this is so critical. This is why it's a stumbling block. This is why this is a scandalous belief for the Jew. And Paul should know, the author, because he's Jewish, 
You see, one commentator has noted Christ crucified was a contradiction in terms of the same category as fried ice in the Jewish milieu, in the Jewish mind and worldview. Who would have thought that God's chosen one, the Messiah, would be sent to die? That just seems so foolish, right? Well, before I answer that, let's go to this other worldview, the Greek worldview. And theirs is a little bit easier. Their pushback is a little easier to explain. They, they were simply looking for someone to come and teach the mysteries of the universe. They were looking for someone to come and show them how to help them with their self-help, to become better people. We all want that. We all want to become better people. And so when Jesus, a rabbi, dies an early death, it just seems like a good waste of an education. I mean... Who cares if he died? And you can hear the Greek community pushing back saying, who cares if Jesus died? Let's stop talking about this whole cross thing. He obviously wasn't that smart if he found himself on a cross in the middle of of his 30s. And you see what the common denominator with both the Jewish worldview and the Greek worldview is that they weren't looking for God to come and die. They weren't looking for it. And still today, every pushback that comes to the cross comes with this key nugget, insisting that God conform to our views as to how God ought to act. Insisting that God conform to our views as to how God ought to act. Yeah, God, if you change my circumstances, then I'll believe. Prove to me you've got the power. God, if you answer my questions with the answers I expect you to answer with, then I'll believe, but not until then. Wait, you had to die for me? You came to die for me, to become my curse? I can't be that bad. Seriously? How's that going to improve my self-esteem? I can't be that terrible. You've got to be kidding me, God. And every culture, every age has a pushback to the cross and cries out that this is foolishness. And yet... The reason it is, or it feels like foolishness, is because we don't naturally go looking for what the cross offers at the very core of what God says we need. And so when we boast in the cross, what we're really saying is that God is smarter than us. When we boast in the cross, what we're really saying is that God is smarter than us. Because in our arrogance, in our self-absorption, we can look at the cross and say, this is foolishness. And Paul says in verse 25, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Think about it. It's logical to imagine that the inventor of a computer, that he would be more complex and more brilliant than the computer he himself has invented, yes? So as we think about God, the creator, it would seem pretty logical that he would be more brilliant than the brilliant, the most brilliant of human beings he's ever created. Such that when we come into situations where what God's doing doesn't make sense, the first move isn't demanding answers. It's actually asking us to stretch and learn from how God is working. It's not logically impossible. It's actually really easy to follow the logic that that God is smarter than us. You know, for example, I was a business administrative minor in college, um, and you sit in microeconomics, and you wrestle through the supply and demand curves and how they intersect 
One thing I could have done in the midst of the confusion at first was pound the table, stand up and say, this is foolish. This is ridiculous. When in reality, it's just difficult. And we we come to almost every other aspect of our lives and we come ready to learn. We know there's more we need to understand. And yet sometimes when we come to God, we start throwing around accusations like, you just don't get it. Do you really know what I need? A God who dies for me? Really? That seems so foolish. Look what else I've got going on in my life. But humanity, even at its best, has never been smart enough to come up with the cross. That's why we shouldn't be surprised that it's difficult for us to grasp the depths of what this word of the cross means for us. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when many push back and reject the word of the cross. Never would we have thought that God had to die for us to bring forgiveness. Let alone, never would we have thought that God himself would actually do it. The great creator of the universe enters humanity and knowing our great need for forgiveness dies for us because he loves us that much. Who wants to admit we're that far gone? That's not the normal fodder for boasting around the water cooler, is it? And yet, this is what it means to embrace the word of the cross. This is God's word to us. This is God's word for us where we will finally find forgiveness that lasts and acceptance that brings healing. You see, the way of the cross seems foolish. Paul knows this. It's been that way since the cross occurred. And yet when we boast in the cross, what we're really saying is that God's a lot smarter than us. And that makes sense. Look, here in the Christian faith, that doesn't mean we're anti-intellectual. We don't leave our brains at the door when we walk in here because God made you inquisitive beings. He made us inquisitive beings that ask questions. One of the key values of scripture is understanding. It's learning. It's growing. And yet the hard reality is when we come to the pages of scripture, the people of the cross seem foolish. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And the irony here is that although in this first century church, many were poor and powerless, there were also others within this church community who were of the opposite camp, who were wealthy, who were considered wise in their community. And we're going to see some of the issues that are happening in their community because of these great social divides. You see, Corinth was a unique place in ancient Rome. In most of ancient Rome, if you had any wealth, if you had any status, it came from birth because you were born into it. Well, Corinth is new money. <laughs> you had ex-slaves, you had fr- or, uh, freed slaves, ex-soldiers who moved to Corinth to make it big, to make a name for themselves, and to boast in that name. This is how you move up the social ladder. And in this small pa- pocket, in the rest of Rome, you have a place where there actually are a couple steps of social mobility. And look what Paul says, even amidst this rare culture in the first century. Verse 27 But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
He's the source of your life. Or because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why is Paul saying, as it is written? Where is he getting this from? He's actually quoting an older section in scripture. He's quoting the prophet Jeremiah, who's actually confronting a really arrogant Israel at their time in history. And in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, this is what Paul is quoting here. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And what Paul's doing by quoting this passage is he's saying, if you really want to know who God is, you want to know what his steadfast love, his righteousness, and his justice is all about, you got to know Jesus Christ crucified. And that's the source of our boasting. Nothing else. And man, as, as urban Americans, as urbanites, um, no matter where you're from on the globe, we love to brag, don't we? We love to brag about how smart we are. Hey, did you read that, that recent book or that recent article or that recent mag- magazine? No, no, no. I didn't get time. I was finishing up another Dostoevsky novel. I mean, they just take up all my time. Hashtag humble brag, right? You know, we love to brag about the power and influence we have. Oh, my boss is killing me. They just gave me another promotion. And they think, you know, that I can do all the work that normal people can't do in that amount of time because they think my skills are amazing and it's so annoying. You know, hashtag humble brag. We love to brag about all the stuff we have. Hey, did you get the latest iPhone, iMac, iTablet? I love Mac, by the way. Uh, you know, uh, did you get this? No, no, no. I'm on the waiting list. The newest version comes out in two months and I'm going to be the first in line. Oh, great. Hashtag humble brag, right? We, we love to brag about these things and okay, we've got our credentials, right? We think we're so great, but God sees through all of that and he gets down to the heart of what's going on and he knows we're longing and aching for more. Sure, underneath all of that bragging is a heart that longs for God's approval and his acceptance, and that's only possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, look, Paul says we're foolish. Think of all the decisions we've made in our lives where we've just made a fool of ourselves. We're weak. Think of the habits we've tried to change time and time and time again, and yet we fall back into the old ruts. We're despised. Think of the sinful decisions we've made that destroy ourselves, others, and defame the name of God. And yet it's only those who admit that they're foolish, that they're weak, that they're, that's, that they're low and despised, who would ever accept a Savior like this. Jesus only becomes wisdom when we realize just how foolish we are. So that's why when we boast in the cross, what we're really saying, and this one's going to sting, but God picked you because no one else would. (laughs) That's what Paul's saying here. I know it stings. And listen to how one commentator paraphrases it. Who in the name of wisdom would have chosen you to be the new people of God. (laughs) Anybody else felt that way? I felt that way. And, And Paul makes this very clear. God's picking his team. Over and over again, we see God's initiative. Verse 26, consider your calling. God dialed our number, if you want to use a modern analogy. 
Look in verse 27, God chose. Again in verse 27, God chose. In verse 28, God chose. But who did he choose? He doesn't choose the people who've got a ton to brag about, who think they can handle their messes all nice and neat on their own. Instead, he chooses the people who are so desperate for change because they know they can't handle their life on their own. The fools, the weak, the low and despised. I'm convinced that if we knew all the dark and, dark and dirty thoughts that flow through our minds, the things that we keep in the shadows off our Facebook profiles, off our Twitters, right? Then if you keep the analogy going, our natural reaction is to defriend those people in a heartbeat. And yet, when we come to this and we see God's initiative and in choosing and calling, we can get so arrogant and say, ah, ha, ha. God chose me because I'm so smart. I'm so strong. I'm the, I'm the pick of the litter, right? I'm not the runt. But here we're seeing that God chose us not because of something about us, because we're so lovely, we're so amazing, we're so wonderful. But God chose us to show something about himself, about how good, how loving, how amazing he is. And the world, with all of its agenda against God's good purposes and the restoration of the world, God says, okay, I'll take your leftovers. <laughs> I'll take the worst of the worst, and I'll put to shame, that's what Paul's saying, your best. Because I'm that good, I'm that powerful, and the doors are wide open for all who want to partake. Such that the only thing we have left to boast in is not because we're that good, but the cross of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Look, the people of the cross seem foolish. Such that when we boast in the cross, what we're really saying is that God picked you because no one else would. And, you know, our natural reaction, and if we're going to be real, is to not only understand that the way of the cross seems foolish and the people of the cross seem foolish, but the message of the cross, it seems foolish. It's partly why we never share it with our coworkers at work anymore. They're never really going to believe this. <laughs> That's why we shut our mouths when we're at family functions anymore. I've already talked to them enough. It's why when we even get with our closest group of friends, we fight over who gets to brag about each other the longest, right? We still get into these petty arguments because we really don't think the message of the cross is all that great. Look again at what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And when I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible or persuasive, is what that word means, persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The cross is offensive. For some of us in here this morning, we hear this, and it offends you. The rest of the world looks at this and says, this is a idiotic, this is foolish, this is nonsense. And yet for the Christian faith, at its very core, it's all about Jesus Christ crucified. That's the message we proclaim. 
That's our hope. To a dark, dying, and broken world, we so desperately proclaim that Jesus Christ has died in our place and has rose again to begin to put the pieces back together. God has acted in history, and that's better than any well-crafted argument. And I know this sounds weird for me since I prepared a sermon, right? It's better than any eloquent speech. Not saying that I'm eloquent, trust me. Um, It's better than any of our credentials, It's Jesus Christ, the old rugged cross. That's God's power to save. And when we boast in the cross and only the cross, what we're really saying is that God works in spite of us. Now, there can be a pushback to this that says, oh, come on, what about us? And and if you look really to the depths of your own heart, we all see our own failures, don't you? Don't we? We try to sugarcoat them. We try to avoid them. But we've all got brokenness that we need to be real about. And what's so beautiful about the fact that God works in spite of us is that you don't have to be awesome to make a difference. You don't have to have the perfect words, the perfect life, all the, the best answers that you can find. Because what we're proclaiming isn't a message of me. It's the word of the cross, It's the word of the cross. And God loves us so much that he works best through our weaknesses. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul here. He's such a great example of this. He's utterly transparent about his weaknesses such that he came to them in weakness. He was afraid. He was trembling and scared to death almost. And he knows and he's coming And what we find is that God's glory shines the brightest in these moments because no one else can get the credit for saving the Corinthians but God. Paul's like, look, I came to you with nothing. I didn't try to give you a really pretty argument. I wasn't trying to look really good. I was scared to death and I just proclaimed the message of the cross. And that's why you're here. That's the power of God. That's the work of the Spirit. Not me. Not me. If you look even at the gospel... Jesus, born in some backwoods barn in Bethlehem. At age 12, he amazes rabbis and all the teachers in the synagogue in Bethlehem. He could have made it big. If it was just about teaching us really good ideas, that would have been the time to do it. We talked about this during Advent. But instead, he goes incognito for 18 years as a carpenter? (laughs) Why? Because to the rest of the world, Jesus now seems to come out of nowhere No great pride comes from the teacher that might have taught him. No great pride comes to a leadership class. But Jesus came to die, to bring glory to God. And when he picks his followers, he doesn't bring the philosophers and the experts. He picks the rejects. He picks fishermen, tax collectors, and zealots so that when they proclaim the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, no one gets the credit but God for what he's done. Okay, so we feel inadequate. (laughs) Uh, That's not a shocker. Everyone knows it because everyone secretly feels the great reality of our inadequacy, right? Our brokenness. It's time to get over ourselves and embrace the word of the cross as God's word for us. I, I, I honestly, I get up here week after week and I wrestle through my own inadequacies, my own fears, my own weaknesses. I mean, being a pastor is a really weird job. (laughs) If you think about comparing it to other jobs. I study this book throughout the week. 
And then I get up here week after week and I preach. And some of you, I walk very closely in your lives as I seek to once again point you to this book and pray that God would work through what he has spoken and what he continues to speak through what he has spoken. And yet here we are. And every sermon I pray and try to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because I just don't have that many good ideas. I don't have that many good ideas. I'm not cool enough to be Oprah. Look under your chairs, right? I'm not that guy. And every good idea I've ever really had is probably, I've probably stolen from someone else. And so whenever I preach, I hope to proclaim the word of the cross, Jesus Christ crucified for us. That's at the center of the Christian faith. That's at the center of the church. That's all I have is the cross. And when we boast in the cross, We get to rest in a very real sense that God works through our weaknesses. He works even in spite of us. There's only one thing we can boast in, and that's Jesus Christ crucified. If you're here this morning and you thought you were a Christian and you're really offended by this, I get it. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're really offended by this, I don't blame you. Um, Because from every human angle, the cross is foolishness to an onlooking world. It offends every one of our 21st century sensibilities. And yet the question remains, what are you going to boast in? Where are you going to find your confidence? Are you really that good? I doubt it. Everybody else knows it, but maybe you at this point. Maybe me. Are you gonna, where are you going to go finding that acceptance from someone to finally say you're pretty enough, smart enough, good enough? The gospel, the gospel says that if we boast in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, then finally we can rest in the finished work of God on our behalf. And we no longer have to work tirelessly to get the approval of others. We don't have to be the annoying guy at the water cooler who doesn't even realize we've been talking the past 20 minutes about ourselves. That's the cross. And it seems crazy to boast in Jesus Christ crucified, but isn't it even more crazy to keep boasting in those same things that everybody else knows is empty, that you know is empty, that you yourself know doesn't last? That's why you have to brag at every party you go to because you've got to keep renewing that affirmation. I am good enough. They thought I was good enough, but do they think I'm good enough? The question remains, what are you going to boast in? And if you're here this morning and you are saved, I think the challenge also comes to us. Imagine if we boasted in Jesus Christ with utter confidence. I mean, utter confidence. We believed the word of the cross. We began to see ourselves through the lens of the cross. Listen to how that would change the interactions with your coworkers, how that would change the interactions with your family, no longer an estranged parent, a father, or a mother, a sibling, No longer would they be outside of the bounds of forgiveness. It would change your community. You would no longer have the place to say, I'm the only one doing anything in this community. (laughs) You see, at the cross, when we boast in Jesus Christ crucified, no longer can we look down our noses at anyone because we're all the worst. 
No longer can we withhold forgiveness because we know God went to the extreme to offer forgiveness for us. No longer will we shy away from sharing the message of the cross because we know in the message of the cross that God works best through our weaknesses. No longer will we spend tirelessly trying to gobble up the conversation time at dinner parties or around the water cooler to talk about ourselves or to boast in ourselves about what we've done, where we've been, who we met. Because our insecurity will finally find rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That yeah, we're the worst, but God loved us when we were the worst before we did anything to ever earn any type of acceptance. And because he loved us when we were the worst, there's nothing we can ever do to keep his acceptance from keep going. You see? If he loved us when we were the worst, when we didn't deserve it, even when we feel the most like we don't deserve it, it doesn't change whether God loves us, accepts us, and forgives us. That's the power of the gospel. And for the church, for Christians, we get into trouble not when we don't, when we, when we boast too much in the cross. We actually get into trouble. We make a mess of things when we don't boast in the cross enough. Now, some of us may say, ho, 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 ho. I know some really arrogant Christians who love to talk about how they got it all right and everybody else has it all wrong. Well, that becomes a boasting in yourself, not the cross. If we're boasting in Jesus Christ crucified, it brings a lasting freedom. It brings an unheard of humility and courage to not talk about ourselves when we want to talk about ourselves and to talk about the gospel when we're afraid to talk about the gospel. And it brings a deep forgiveness to the very core of who we are. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that God's smarter than you. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that God picked you because no one else would. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that God works in spite of us. In other words, boast in the cross. Let's pray. We hear the words of your Apostle Paul who came with the authority to speak in the church. God, may we hear your word. God, we don't even have the words really to pray. That's why in another letter, we are reminded that we have been given the Holy Spirit who actually prays for us, intercedes for us in words and in groanings beyond our comparison and beyond our comprehension. And so we pray in thankfulness this morning that as fools, as weak, as undeserving of your great grace, you came and you died. Amidst all the empty boasting in our world, all the empty boasting we're prone to, I'm prone to, Lord, may we boast in Jesus Christ and him crucified. May you do your magnificent work in us, in our weaknesses. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us, his followers, a meal. A meal that in its very act reminds us of the gospel, that only Jesus Christ is the source of true boasting, of true forgiveness, of true satisfaction. And it's in this meal, the very action where we are invited to the table by God, we receive of no account of our own the bread and the juice as a symbol, as a remembrance of the forgiveness we've received in Jesus Christ. And it's this gospel we preach to our senses of taste and of touch and smell that Jesus Christ's body was broken for us 
as the bread symbolizes. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, which is what the juice symbolizes. If you're new here, um, let me tell you how we go about doing this together. First, we would ask and request that only those who have proclaimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they have come to see Jesus as the true Messiah, the true Christ, that they would come to the table. And you are welcome. You don't have to be a member of this church to do that. And if you are here and you're not yet ready to call yourself a Christian, we're really glad you're here. We need you here. We learn from you. I hope you know that. Um, we, We are asking questions together and we're growing together. Use this time to pray that Jesus would continue to reveal himself to you, to bring a great quietness to the unrest in your heart that can only come through the gospel. But if you do come, come down one of the two aisles, and then you'll circle back around to one of the two communion stations. You'll get in groups of four to six. You'll take the bread together, dip it in the juice, and partake it together. If you have a child who is yet to proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Um, our servers will offer a blessing to the child in the same vein that Jesus blesses children when they come to him, as we see in the Gospels. Well, before we come, let us remember what has been handed down to us, which actually comes in our letter, 1 Corinthians, as it's an echo from what we find in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.